Bhagavatasa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami So here we are now, a little over two weeks into the winter retreat, and uh, we're having our first big winter storm. So it really feels like winter retreat now. And uh, we just finished up the community, uh, or the communal portion of the winter retreat, where we, we do group practice in the mornings and in the afternoons. And we do uh, pujas together, morning and evening. And that's a helpful structure, especially at the beginning, to get us uh, into the groove, into the into the right uh, mind state and rhythm of directing our minds over and over again to the meditation, to peace, to stillness, and to the themes of the Dhamma. And now comes the hard part because there'll be a little less structure and uh, it takes more motivation to sustain the effort and the uh, rhythm of uh, bringing the mind back to the meditation practice and cultivating mindfulness throughout the day over and over again. There are, of course, hundreds or thousands of other things the mind could do uh, other than follow the breath or pay attention to the sensations of walking or mindfully wash dishes or mindfully vacuum a carpet. Uh, we have a deep habit of allowing the mind to wander uh, and we're training the mind to be able to hold attention in the present moment for increasingly long periods of time. And this takes a certain supervisory attitude and a willingness to keep coming back over and over again, uh, realizing that the habits of mind that we are retraining, they're very deep. The mind is made of habits and it has a beliefs and outlooks and viewpoints that are decades or centuries or lifetimes old. These attitudes and beliefs and ideas that we have uh, have deep roots and so we can't expect them to change overnight. So we have to always have a, a sense of patience and um, tolerance for the setbacks and for the difficulties and for the our own humanness when things don't go according to any idealistic plan that we might have for our meditation. A key component of success in the winter retreat is to have a, a, a fairly acute um, sense of motivation 
when the wind retreat starts to open up a little bit and we have more uh, liberty to, to structure our time how, however we like, it's easy to start taking long naps and uh, waking up late and going to bed early and reading books and just generally not doing very much meditating. It's, it's easy to fall into such habits because they're easier and they have their own attractions. So you could say that the mind is motivated to do those things to some extent. But you're also motivated to be here. And so there's this inner competition. Which motivation will win? In any given day, you might be extremely motivated to practice Dhamma. And so then it seems easy to get up early and start meditating and uh, maybe do a puja by yourself or come to the puja that we'll have here in the mornings. Uh, after the meal, maybe you need to take a little brief rest before uh, taking up the practice again, but the brief rest could turn into a long rest if your motivation is not there. So maybe you uh, rest for 15 minutes or so and then back to, back to formal practice. And if your motivation is strong, you can, you can uh, sustain a strong effort all day long. And a strong effort doesn't necessarily have to be uh, making you sweat blood or, 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 or it doesn't have to be heroic. Uh, it just needs to be steady. A willingness to keep coming back over and over again and not let the mind play hooky, uh, go off and do all the other things that it, it could do. So when it's time to sit, uh, it's very good to make a, a schedule for yourself so there is a time for you to sit. Uh, when you've decided that this is the, these are the hours that I'm going to spend uh, doing sitting practice, when it's time to sit, then if your motivation is strong, you'll be able to bring yourself and sit. And then when it's time to do walking meditation according to the schedule that you have for yourself, then you'll do walking meditation. So where does this motivation come from? It's a, it's a it's a mixture of a mystery and uh, fairly obvious. <laughs> the the mystery is the mysteries of kama, the the kama that we have that allows us to recognize the dhamma. The same dhamma that the Buddha preaches to uh, thousands or millions of people through the centuries. Uh, it resonates with us. It resonates with practitioners. Uh, but many other people hear the same words and it doesn't mean anything to them. So somehow we've got this special endowment to recognize the value of what the Buddha is teaching. That doesn't always translate into powerful motivation every day, all day long. And so this is where the, uh, the, the more straightforward pretty obvious part comes in. So the mysterious part we don't have any control over. It's just our kama. Uh, it comes from the past. But the kama that we make in the present is something that we can do with our mind. And it's really no more complicated than baking a, uh, well, baking cookies. You just get the ingredients together, you follow the, the protocol and heat the oven up and you'll have some cookies. So it's not it's not very not very complicated. Uh, there's a great sutta uh, 
There are many, there are many great suttas. There's a great sutta that's, that came to mind recently for me. And uh, you've probably heard this one before if you've been studying the suttas at all. But uh, as you've seen, uh, a lot of the suttas that have a considerable depth to them, they bear repeating over and over again. I've been, I've been chanting the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta for uh, many years now, and uh, I still think it's just fantastic. It's got such power. <coughs> I find it very moving, even after having chanted it thousands of times. Uh, so the sutta that's come to mind is, uh, I think it's called the Arata Pala Sutta. And I'm, my Pali's not that good, I can't tell you what it means. I'm pretty sure it refers to the uh, the key figure in the sutta, a fellow named Ratapala. And the sutta concerns itself with this fellow who um, lives in a certain town, and he's part of the, well, I guess you could say, the successful upper class of that town. And he's enjoying himself. He's, his story is a little bit like the Buddha's story. He's, he's uh, wealthy, he's well off, he's young, he's attractive, he's from a really good family, has everything you could want for that time and place. And the Buddha comes to town and everybody goes to see the Buddha because that's just a good thing to do. Uh, so he and his family go and see the Buddha and they all hear the same Dhamma talk from the Buddha. But when Matapala comes back, he's deeply inspired to become a monk. And so he goes to the Buddha later and asks the Buddha to ordain him. And the Buddha uh, asks him whether or not he has his parents' permission. And he says, no, but I'll go get it. So he goes back to his parents and asks them for permission to uh, become a monk. And they don't, they don't want to give it to him because he's their only son and they they, they love him very much and they don't want him going away and becoming some some robe-wearing ascetic such that they'll never see him again. And so they refuse to give him permission and he uh, he's a strong-willed fellow and so he declares that he's going to lie down on the floor and stop eating and he'll either die on the spot or his parents will relent and give him permission. So one of two things will happen. Either he'll ordain or he'll die. And with that declaration, he lies down on the floor and no one can talk him out of it. So uh, his parents try to talk him out of it for seven days. His parents get his, his best friends to come and try to talk him out of it. But he just, he won't have anything of it. He just won't eat. And so uh, at the end, his friends tell his parents that uh, what they should do is they should relent and give him permission. That way he won't die. And then if he goes off and becomes a monk, uh, they, can, they can impose a condition on him that, that he has to come back and visit his parents. And who knows, maybe he won't like it, in which case, where else would he go? He would come back here. And so his parents see the logic of this and they give him permission. And so Ratapala goes off and ordains. And is, as in most of these kind of suttas, the, the uh, central figure, um, practices with the Buddha and practices with the Dhamma and becomes fully enlightened. And then he asks the Buddha for permission to go back and visit his parents because he agreed he would visit his parents. 
and he comes back and his parents uh, don't recognize him at first and they, uh, they, they, they he, the household sort of sees him as just some beggar and uh, but one of the one of the servants recognizes his, his either his hands or his voice or something and uh, she reports this to his parents and his parents uh, get very excited uh, and they invite him for the, the meal the following day and they spend the entire evening and night preparing this fabulous meal and all these kind of pulling out all their wealth and getting their uh, Ratapala's former wives all all gussied up to be really, really attractive. So they're going to try to to lure him back out of out of the robes. And predictably, this does not work. Right? So Ratapala asks them to stop harassing him with all these enticements and simply if they give the meal if there's a meal to be given and then he uh, takes his meal and he goes off and uh, retreats to the uh, to the local uh, deer park that belongs to the king so the king comes along and sees Ratapala there and has a conversation with him and he, he the king asks Ratapala a very intelligent question which is why you know what is it that you saw or what is it that you recognized in the Buddhist teaching that, that made you give up your, your fantastic life here uh, and go off and become a monk. And so this for me is really the punchline of the sutta. It's all very inspiring, but uh, Ratapala delivers these, uh, he calls them four Dhamma summaries. And the four Dhamma summaries, uh, they start off with, uh, the first one is life in any world is swept away. It's unstable, uh, and so everything is swept away. And uh, the king's doesn't really quite understand what that means. Um, but uh, he asks Ratapala to give an example, and so Ratapala points out to the king that asks the king whether, um, when he was young, he was a good military man, a good archer, a good elephant trainer, and uh, a good fighter. And the king said, "Oh yeah, I was, I was quite the, uh, quite the power. I, you know, I could defeat any man. I had, I was, had really, really strong legs, really, really strong arms." Um, and, and he says, "Well, how, how about now? Now that you're 80?" He says, "Well, sometimes I try to put my foot here and it goes there. I'm really weak, and all those, all those things are gone." And Ratapala says, this is what's meant by that Dhamma summary. Everything is swept away. Life in any world is unstable. And so whatever conditions are pertaining at any moment, those conditions will be swept away. And the second Dhamma summary is, uh, let's see if I can remember it here. Life in any world has no protector, no shelter. And the king asks what this means, and, and he says, well, what do you think, great king? If, um, if you were to get an illness, um, say you had like a, a deadly illness, and you were coughing and coughing up blood, or something terrible like this has happened to you, and all your friends and family were gathered around you, could you ask any of them to take on this illness for you? Or would you have to bear the illness by yourself? And of course the king admits, yes, I I would have to bear that illness by myself. No one can take it on. 
And he says, this is what's meant by that second Dhamma summary. Life in any world has no protector, no refuge. The third Dhamma summary is life in any world has uh, no owner. Uh, one has to leave all and move on. And so, again, the king asked for an example, and uh, Ratapala says, well, great king, when, um, when you come to the end of your years, uh, surrounded by all your wealth and your family, your elephants and all your military and your castle, um, what do you think? Will you be able to take these five cords of sensual pleasure with you to whatever comes after death? Or will you have to leave it behind? And will somebody else get to enjoy that wealth? And of course, the king admits that someone else will, will have that wealth. He won't be able to take it with him. So this is what's meant by that Dhamma summary. Life in any world has no owner or no ownership. Uh, ownership is an illusion. One cannot own anything, really. One has to give it all up and, be, and move on when the time comes. And of course, one doesn't really know when the time will come. And the fourth Dhamma summary is, let's see here. Let's go through these one more time. Life in any world has, is unstable, uncertain, swept away. Everything is swept away. Life in any world has no protector. Life in any world has no owner. Oh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. So life in any world is insatiate. In other words, uh, and so the king asked, asked the example. The example is, well, great king, if you had, uh, if someone came to you tomorrow and said uh, that they were, they'd gone to across the river and uh, a few miles away and, and discovered a, an entire country just jammed full of people and elephants and treasure and commerce, and they had a really weak army over there and you could easily go over there and conquer it. Would you go conquer it? And the king says, well, yeah, I'd, I'd go straight away and go conquer it. And so uh, he says, and if, if there was another kingdom in the, in the opposite direction, would you go conquer that one too? And, and so the king admits that, yes, he would just keep conquering and conquering and that he would never actually be satisfied. And so that's the, uh, the, the that fourth Dhamma summary, that life in any world is insatiate a slave to craving. There's no, there's no possibility of completely fulfilling the cravings that we are subject to. And he says, this, these are the, the Dhamma summaries that were known and seen by the Buddha, that were uh, fully, you know, the, the fully enlightened Buddha, that understanding these, I chose to become, to, to go forth into the homeless life. And I think those are really um, wonderful summaries or uh, ways of, of summarizing the Dhamma uh, to bear in mind for our motivation. So our motivation comes from something like what Ratapala saw, which is that this life that we ordinarily live um, is a slave to craving, it's insatiate, it 
has no owner. It's, we can't actually own or control really anything. Uh, that it's unstable, will be swept away, and that there's no protection in it. And so it's a very kind of a flimsy sort of thing that we're, we're taking to be our life. So this is the life in this world that we have. And these four Dhamma summaries apply to it. And so Ratapala saw that there's this one alternative to life in any world, and that's to follow the, the, the Dhamma of the Buddha and to come to the end of craving and come to the end of uh, trying to own things, the end of trying to control things, trying to find protection and shelter, trying to um, find stability and uh, to go beyond all those things and find a, a stable, lasting freedom and happiness that doesn't depend on external conditions. These same sorts of reflections have been presented to us in other ways, in the, in the, in the suttas and in the, the sometimes we'll, we'll go through these things in the daily chanting, in the morning chanting. Uh, so the, uh, the, five uh, the five reflections that one should frequently bring to mind. Uh, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. Surely old age will come to me unless I'm unlucky and I die young. I am of the nature to sicken, have not gone beyond sickness. Surely illness will come to me. I am of the nature to die. And death can come at any time. One doesn't know, one doesn't know the hour of one's death. One only knows for certain that one will die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. This obviously is pointing to the ownerlessness of things. We are always separated from those things that we love, inevitably. And then, of course, I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, related to my kama, Abide supported by my comma, whatever comma I shall do for good or for ill of that, I will be the heir. Everything that we do, everything that we say, every moment of consciousness where we're making choices, we are making comma. We can either make wholesome comma or we can make unwholesome comma. But until we're enlightened, we don't really have a, an alternative of making no comma stopping this comma-making process. So we're, we're kind of stuck in this comma-making process. The comma-making process unfolds every day of our lives. We're constantly inheriting the comma from the past and experiencing the fruits of, the, of what's gone before, whether for good or for ill. And at the same time, we're simultaneously, in the way that we react to our lives, we're making new comma for the future. So as long as we're making comma, the logic here, of course, is to make the best comma that we can. So more than one person's pointed out that what the Buddha's teaching is 
to make this special kind of kama, this kama that leads to the end of kama. A special kind of kama is this practice of the Eightfold Noble Path. So we, we, when we see this clearly, and it's, it's held in the mind as, as a, a, an understanding that there's nothing really worth trying to hold on to in ordinary life. It doesn't mean that we have to abandon our life or that we have to hate our life, but there's nothing in our life that's going to save us. That life simply doesn't have that on offer. And there are things that we're going to have to deal with, ready or not. We will get sick, we will get old, unless we're unlucky and we die young. Uh, we will lose all of our possessions. We will lose our health. We will, we will lose our body at some point. We will die. So there's no real, no real arguing with that. And if we take that seriously, these are the absolute truths of our lives, then it's easy to let go of trivial pursuits and temporary pleasures and minor distractions and put our efforts and our time and our energy where it's really going to yield us some benefit, something really valuable, something really worth having. The reason that we go to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha for refuge is because what the Buddha is pointing to is actually a refuge. The world doesn't have any refuge in it. You can't take refuge in a job or in wealth or possessions, relationships, circumstances, apartments, family. It's all very fragile. Any of it can be taken from you at any time. But if you make your refuge, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and you practice the teachings, and you realize for yourself the noble truths, then in your own direct experience you have this knowledge and vision of the way things are. And the illusion of the way things seem to be is dispelled. And so you're no longer being taken in by the lures of the world. And you're able to conduct yourself in a way that's free, free of the delusion that's at the root of our suffering. And this is a real refuge because it, it's not subject to externals. It doesn't depend on conditions being just so. It doesn't depend, depend on being young or having wealth, or being lucky, or even being healthy. Once the mind is free, the mind gets to stay free. Once you see the truth, then you know. And the only way to get there is through this Eightfold Noble Path. It takes, it takes effort. It takes willingness. It takes repetition. It takes uh, perseverance and patience. And tolerance. Tolerance for everything that doesn't quite go the way you want it to. It takes trust that this is worth doing. Faith that this is going to work. 
And most of that trust and faith comes from seeing already for yourself how efficacious, how effective it is. That the mind, when it's still, it sees more clearly. That when the mind, when it's grasping at things, is suffering. That the mind, when it lets go of its grasping, experiences freedom. Even a little bit of practice can show you these things directly. The possibilities of freedom are uh, absolute. Like there's this absolute freedom that's on offer, that's available uh, in this in this doctrine, in this teaching. It's the uh, it's the goal of the practice. It's the only reason the Buddha taught was to make this available to us. So, if you find that your motivation during the retreat is problematic, it's not necessarily the right approach to try to force yourself through sheer willpower to do things. What you want to do is inspire yourself uh, by reflection. You reflect on these Dhamma summaries, you reflect on these uh, daily daily reminders that are worth bringing to mind uh, and just ask the question you know the days and nights are relentlessly passing how well am I spending my time am I actually using my time in a way that's going to serve me in the future or is it uh, am I just frittering it away and not not in order to make yourself feel guilty or to, to, to cause any sort of anguish but simply to, to uh, enable you to direct your energies in the most productive direction. So think of these kinds of things as um, tools uh, to uh, inform the subconscious on what's the right direction, what's, what's worth doing, so that the heart feels a willingness and inclination to uh, practice seriously. Even when the practice isn't going the way that you want it to, like if the mind won't settle down and uh, sleepiness won't go away and et cetera, et cetera. Don't take those things too seriously because conditions are constantly changing. It's the, it's the repeated, persistent, patient, returning over and over again to the practices ultimately is the payoff that pays off and generates the results. So one has to go through a lot of um, an unknown quantity of difficulty before one starts to see the real um, payoffs from one's efforts. Uh, you catch glimpses along the way and those can be very reinforcing. And the, the mind's ability to redirect its energies uh, based on reflection is a very, very powerful tool. As the Buddha said, uh, those things upon which a practitioner frequently thinks and reflects and directs their mind, that will become the inclination of their mind. So if you want your mind to incline towards Dhamma, towards practice, and incline away from distraction and, and uh, frittering away time and being asleep, 
then you just have to keep bringing to mind over and over again these these principles of uh, these Dhamma summaries and these various other reflections that have been given to us as tools so that the the willingness to practice will be there very naturally it's not not a matter it's not a matter of willpower it's a matter of getting the heart to be on the same side of of uh, of the internal struggle as long as you have internal motivations that are are kind of pro sleepy uh, pro uh, uh, ignoring or pro fritter then of course uh, there'll be some degree of inner struggle. Uh, you want to put all your energy on the side of uh, pro-dhamma, pro-meditation, pro-practice. And this will be the, uh, the thing that gets you through the retreat and, and, and generates a lot of benefit for you as you're uh, making your way through the days and nights. So I'll leave those, those words for your reflection. Dhammayan dhamma varekatan sadhu karandhidhamma se sadhu sadhu